2: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Dáil begins with a statement of regret. Pascal Dunahoo addresses his role in an election expenses Rory. We hear from a Dublin city councillor who says anti-immigration protesters targeted his home. And housing is back on the political agenda. The government today says there will be a fully funded scheme to repair defective apartments. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Day one at the Dáil as TDs returned after the Christmas break and it started with a bang with Pascal Donoghue taking to the floor to make a statement on the election expenses for Ori swirling around him for the last number of
0: days. Honesty and integrity matter, above all, in public life and I am very sorry
3: that this has happened.
2: Well, that didn't wash with the opposition. Here's what Sinn Féin's peer Doherty had to say.
3: You're good at the numbers. That's 75 polls. That's putting posters up on two polls per hour, Pascal. Seriously, who's going to believe that? You know what we should do? Me and you will get, grab a ladder and a stopwatch and see how many posters we put up. It is laughable what you're trying to do and you're trying to take us for fools in relation to these concocted
1: stories.
2: Well, let's bring in my panel. I'm joined by Minister of State with Special Responsibility for Integration, Joe O'Brien. Sinn Féin TD, Ono O'Brien. Political correspondent from the Irish Mirror, Louise Byrne, and special correspondent for the Irish Examiner, Mick Clifford. Um, You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. To come to you first on this, Louise, um, the opposition wanted answers to questions they felt needed answering um, when Pascal Donoghue appeared before the Dáil this evening. Did they get them?
0: I think this is a cause controversy in Leinster House all day. Um, the Kian Korda sent an email to the party whips last night to say that Pascal Donoghue would make a statement for 10 minutes and that would be followed by five minutes of statement from each of the opposition parties. Now, there was kind of back and forth all day. Would Pascal Donoghue take questions and answers, which is what the opposition wanted? Um, ultimately, that isn't what happened. So, Pascal Donoghue got up on his feet. Um, a lot of it was what we had already heard, to be honest, over the last couple of days. One new thing that did come to light is that um, Michael Stone, who is the businessman who is paid for the election post. To be put up, Pascal Donahue said that he had bought Super Draw tickets from him. Now, this is the Finnegall annual raffle that they do every year. So he bought tickets amounting to just under 1400 euro over two years so that was the only kind of new thing we learned there was a lot of questions that the opposition asked such as you know what time of the day we were posters put up because you said it happened in the evening time but pictures have shown that it happened in the middle of the day so there's a lot of picture, a lot of questions that weren't answered and I don't think this is going to be the end of it from the opposition at all.
2: Um, yeah, on that, own we heard Pierce Doherty there and he did make the point um, when he stood up in the Dáil that Pascal Donoghue is the minister responsible for overseeing ethics legislation. Shouldn't he be treated like every other TD, though, in this regard?
3: He shouldn't. In fact, a number of his ministerial colleagues uh, did answer questions in, in a back and forth with opposition spokespeople uh, uh, earlier uh, in this Dáil term and the last Dáil term in the controversies. So, in fact, uh, there was no reason why Pascal shouldn't. And you see, there are two separate things here. CIPO obviously has to decide if they're going to do a formal investigation. And then if they decide to do that, that investigation will take its course. But ministers are ultimately accountable to the Dáil and to the Iraqnus. And it is absolutely legitimate for TDs uh, from all of the opposition parties to expect the minister to answer questions. And there's some really simple questions. See, this isn't just about a few posters. This is about a minister <coughs> who failed to declare a very significant donation uh, uh, from a businessman. That was brought to his attention not once but twice, 2017 mm. and 2022, and the Minister did nothing uh, about it. Uh, the Minister's story, since a former complaint has gone in and he's now rectifying the records, has changed five times. And at the core of this is how much was that donation? Was it more than what the Minister said? And if it was more, did it breach the that, uh, donations limit? Yeah. And in turn, could it have potentially breached the spending? Is
2: limits? that for SIPPO to find out
3: now, at well, this point? Is
2: there only so far you can go in a DAW forum by
3: throwing those questions back and forth? The the problem is we didn't get anywhere because uh, uh, unlike, for example, the Taoiseach himself or other ministers, uh, this government refused to allow Pascal Donoghue to answer any questions. And in fact, in the five minutes that Pascal had at the end, he just talked down the clock. So you yeah. have a government that All is right. refusing to be accountable and it's not just one minister, we haven't talked about Damien English, two ministers, now one a former minister, embroiled in scandals on the because first day back as Taoiseach, uh, uh, first day back in the doll. it stinks of one rule for them and another rule for the rest of us.
2: Joe O'Brien, what, what's your take on it um, as someone within yeah. the coalition? Um, it's not happening in, in your party, as far as we know, although maybe a, an audit across the board could be healthy um, for everyone in the doll. But, but what is your take on it? Is there discomfort within the Greens
4: about it? Look, I, I think everyone who's worked with Pascal knows him to be a forthright and conscientious person. He's put his hands up about the mistakes he's made on this. Um, he did go before the doll today. He didn't make an opening statement. Questions were put out. He had five did he minutes. he answer all the questions he, that were put he, there, though? To I be mean... fair to him, he framed them as best he could with the time he had. But what I would say about the five minutes was that half of it was shouting by opposition. That meant that he had about two minutes in the end to actually uh, detail some of these answers. He did say as well that a lot of the questions that were being asked were quite detailed. And, and, and in my understanding, it would need some time and reflection because a lot of detailed questions that were, were asked. And I think, to be fair, it's in the right arena now when it's gone to SIPO. Where there can be that over and back on, on detail. What about,
2: uh, what about those calls for a cross-party audit um, on declarations on SIPO returns? Is that something that you'd welcome?
4: I am I'm, I'm open to proposals like that. Um, would it's, that be a yes? I would I would be open to it if that's if that was a if that was a decision. I, I would have no issues with that. You have to consider though, what would that involve resource-wise? 166 TDs are going back through all their records for how long. I would say all our records are out there as well at the moment. That's, that's one of the reasons why this story has come to the fore, because our records are, are viewable publicly as well, and that's, that's a good and right thing.
2: Uh, although it hasn't led to transparency, that's why we're getting stories like this. That's why we're getting, uh, you know, in the case of Damien English, a uh, ministerial resignation. Um, Mick, on this, has Pascal Donoghue, do you think, done enough to quell the disquiet, say, save, save, another issue coming to the fore now?
1: He possibly does. He possibly has. We just have to wait and see what else comes out. I mean, personally, I think his big problem is the way he's handled it, and this is all the way back to 2017. If he had declared then this benefit as it was, you know, and even if it was over Lymph was investigated, that thing could have been dealt with. Late last year, and a number of media inquiries still didn't deal with it. He finally deals with it now. And to me, it's the same thing again and again in scenarios like that. And I, I cannot believe, Claire, how many times it happens the politicians in one situation or another, they genuinely believe these things will never come out and they inevitably do and in the end it's far worse because they don't just come clean at the very first opportunity because there's absolutely no doubt that is always going to be the easiest way to get past these kind of things.
2: Yeah, and Perhaps we will get more um, detail <coughs> depending on what comes of this SIPO investigation should there be one Um and we'll see, as I say, the sense uh, the, is, in the opposition anyway, that it will it will rumble on. Well, to another topic that will be top of the agenda this dull term, and that's around immigration. Senior politicians have said in the last few days that we should expect the same number of refugees from Ukraine as last year. And over the last few weeks, we have seen anti-asylum protests bring up, bringing the issues of migrants and integration into stark focus. In the last 24 hours, People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny has said that he has received far-right threats, uh, that they would come to his home and, quote, burn it down. Um, we want to talk a little bit about this and about your role, uh, Joe O'Brien, as minister with responsibility for integration. You're a new minister in this area. You've spent the last couple of weeks, I'm sure, being briefed on the role. What would you say is the biggest challenge as you take on this job in 2023?
4: Well, my specific role will be around community engagement. Uh, I have some other duties as well in terms of launching a national action plan uh, against racism, which I think is increasingly important, and a new national migrant integration strategy as well. But I suppose building from my two and a half years experience in the Department of Rural and Community Development, working with community groups on the ground, a key part of what I want to do over the next two years or so is to build on the links that have already been made in communities, in particular with international mm-hmm. protection applicants.
2: Isn't that going so, to be really hard to do with the stresses <coughs> that are in the system at the moment?
4: But they're already there, these links are already there, and, and I suppose it's about augmenting them as well. Like, I'll give you an example. I went to Ballymun last week, where I met with the residents in two of the locations outside which there were protests. And what struck me was, particularly in the one where people have been living for nine months or more, they were actually quite integrated in with the community in, in, in Ballymun as well played with the local soccer team, kids going to school, a lot of connection between the people in the community there as well. And I think that's what we need to focus on in a proactive way. To build that integration at a community level that will insulate the community as a whole from the threats that that are that are that we're facing at the moment.
2: Well, there's no doubt we have seen an increase and a rise in the number of protests. I think that are that are that are taking place not just in those communities you mentioned in Dublin, but right around the country. Um, I'm joined on Skype by Dublin City Councillor Vincent Jackson, who said that protesters turned up outside his family home last week. Vincent, you're very welcome along to the programme. Can you tell us what what was what was Happening at your house, um, when it happened, and 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 why do you think protesters gathered there?
5: Well, how it happened. Firstly, I I had uh, to bring a young lad, one of my lad, one of my sons, up to get spectacles last. Um, Thursday evening up to Specsavers in Liffey Valley and I took my wife's car about quarter to six and unfortunately I left the telephone uh, the mobile phone on the table here where I'm sitting from now and uh, we were delayed a little bit up in Liffey Valley and when I got back at about 20 past seven I was met by my wife and my daughter very upset uh, here in the house and I actually I thought something had happened my mother-in-law my father-in-law passed away a few weeks ago my mother-in-law has been very ill over the last few weeks herself she's in her late 80s Uh, Only to be told uh, by my wife what had just happened and a group of about 40 to 60 people, we believe, had assembled outside my home here in Ballyfermas and were shouting, get them out, get them out. And Trace heard they were calling me, and uh, a lot of huge amount of misinformation in Ballyfermot last week, I have to say. It left my wife, my son, and my daughter in a very distressed state here. But uh, we were fighting the rear guard action from last Monday here in Ballyfermot, where there was a huge amount of misinformation going around that there were a number of asylum seekers staying in schools and in the place I work here, beside where I live, and in a small convent down the road here. And there's one unique feature I managed to. Sports complex. I'm chairperson of two of the schools and I'm on the board of management of the other two schools, but there was no truth in any of it. And despite our best efforts to relay to people, there was no truth. People all of a sudden were seeing beds going into the schools. They were seeing people walking around the schools in the middle of the night. And it was all—I have to be honest—a uh, whole package of misinformation being fed to people, and unfortunately, Claire, Vincent, some people believe what they that. Were being told.
2: Yeah, where do you think that came from? Where, where did those rumours come from? How did they spread? <laughs>
5: Well, uh, someone in our community here who has took it upon themselves to be at the vanguard of ensuring that uh, communities like Ballyfermit doesn't have any asylum seekers, uh, done a little uh, investigation last weekend and travelled around, as I say, to some of the buildings I spoke about there, uh, went in, questioned people, uh, even accused a local uh, school, which is a, gar- a boys' school, that it was a girls' school. Uh, the sports centre that I work in, that our bar, which is closed, 17, years was full of asylum seekers it's now a gym and it's a youth center and it's a community facility and what you will do you'll find when you go in there every day you'll find children and after schools clubs you'll find Ballyfermot youth service you'll find gorty and youth club you'll find all the local sports sure. clubs the gaa clubs and the schools but you won't find asylum seekers and people know that but as I say, this suited a narrative, Claire, for some people to whip up fear and anger. And unfortunately, I, I use the word hate because that's what's been happening here. There's a lot of hate being spread around the community. And I, I, I am, I have to say... You know, I'm very gratified with the amount of people who have come up to support my family over the last few days and the elected members. I have to say all of them, both from the Dáil members and the council members, have stood four square because I know it was me last Thursday and my family. It could be somebody else. One of my colleagues in the north side of the city has got a lot of abuse as well. But uh, the problem is... When you let the genie out of the bottle, it's a lot harder to get it back in. And there was some really, really nasty comments in Ballyfermot last Thursday, like between my home, between the roundabout in Ballyfermot, and between a small convent with six elderly nuns living in it. And like, I live in a democracy, and I'm a Democrat, and I look forward to the elections next right. year. People can make their democratic decision, but that's not the that's not the society that I want. And I have to say, Ballyfermot is a great community and very integrated with all the new communities over many years. And that's the place where I love uh, to live in.
2: Okay, let's get reaction um, to to our panel um, from what you're saying, Vincent. And I can tell that's had a real impact on you and clearly um, very upsetting for you and your family. Um, Mick, to come to you on this, um, you know, that misinformation, that seed that's planted that mistruth that's there, that a school is being used for asylum seekers, that then spreads this fear, that mm. sparks these protests. Um, do you believe that's a growing movement um, that is then being reflected in, in, in larger protests that we're seeing?
1: Yeah, up to a point. The, the, the actual those who we describe as the far right, they're relatively small, but the huge thing here is social media. I mean, the last time there was a large group of people coming into the country, asylum seekers what have you, 20 years ago. And there were people who tried to have opposition to it then. There were, at the time, there was a group called Immigration Platform. This is very different. First of all, in terms of the the, the political flux in the world in general, but particularly in terms of social media and the type of misinformation that Vincent was talking about, that is very easily spread. You have a scenario whereby in one instance, I think it was in Drimna, um, a number of cleaners were coming in to clean a a school and these were portrayed as asylum seekers being bussed into the school and that sparked off. You have that going on all over the place. These people who are at it are very committed and therefore they're very dangerous. Uh, but I, th- I have to say, I think one feature that really stood out in the last week was in local areas, the groups that formed effectively against them from the local communities. I think that's an indication that's very positive in terms of what's, what's going on at the moment.
2: Um, Owen, do you believe it's the case that issues like housing and health are real for people? They're real for all of us, but they're real for people in these uh, communities, maybe in particular, where they feel services are are really squeezed. And it's part, in part, it's that resentment that then better services are not there for people. It sparked a division. It sparked a fear then when there are new people in their community um, and and that it's the government's failure to get a handle on that that's causing these protests.
3: Well, first of all, let me say the the protest outside Councillor Jackson's house was wrong. Um, people have a right to protest and whether I agree with what they're protesting or, about or not, they have a right to protest. But if you're not happy, either with the government or with the opposition, protest at government buildings, protest outside local government buildings, protest outside party political and offices. And that message
2: has been loud and clear and, 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 and we've and heard that at government know, level but, as well. But, but it's but,
3: not changing anything, is it? Well, I, I want to make a, a really strong appeal because it's not just outside a councillor's house. Protesting outside a centre where people, where human beings, whether they're single men or families with children, are also living, seeking temporary protection or international protection. That is not the right way uh, 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 to have your voice heard, in my view, and I'm really appealing to people that they they really need to rethink that strategy. What I would say is this, so Mick is right. There is a very, very small group of people uh, who have a very particular right-wing racist agenda. They don't have the interest of any of our communities at heart, uh, and they are trying to sow misinformation. But what I will also say, and I'm in a constituency where we have five reception centres, one long-standing direct provision centre, which I live beside, uh, and they have a very good relationship with the community, and four new facilities, three hotels and a commercial building. Uh, And where I am critical of government, and I I make these points in a constructive way, is that as each of those centres has opened in the last year, Mm. there has been no communication with local communities at all. And I I don't mean vetoes, I don't mean uh, uh, protracted engagements, no communication and no additional support services. So what I'm urging the government to do is work with us, talk to, listen to, answer the questions of the local communities, and exactly as you say, provide those additional services, whether it's housing, whether it's health, whether it's integration, because we are at a tipping point in our society. And if we don't get this right, Right. the genuine concerns and fears of ordinary good people in our communities could become something very, very unfortunate. So I, I think the government has let us down. I want, and it's to, just, now I want to get the minister who's, who's responsible for this, to the, fix the problems the view, that they've made the today. The viewpoint
2: on this. Um, we've had a situation where accommodation, as as own has said, has been used for years with no, with no trouble and suddenly protests are springing up. And we've seen there an information void maybe is being filled as well with false claims and fear-mongering. Isn't there... Doesn't the government have to bear responsibility for this? And do you need a change of approach? Because we've heard time and time again, we heard it from Rodrigo Gorman last year, there simply isn't time. We're dealing with thousands of refugees and we need to find somewhere for them to stay. And we have to turn that around very quickly. Yeah. That strategy clearly isn't working now, is it?
4: Well, well, I would say, and I think it's always really important for all of us who are living relatively normal lives that... We took in and accommodated 70,000 people last year and the reason that we are where we are now is because Russia illegally invaded Ukraine. Okay, and there, I think there is a war on the continent. very
2: well aware. In fairness, but I, but I, I think uh, it Minister, does, but I, to the background to all of but that. But I think
4: it's very we're important to put it that. out there again because, as I said, when we when we live our normal lives and when we're not at the forefront of the war, we do let slip, that slip back. We are in a very unusual situation in we are. Europe now at the moment. And, and so 70,000 refugees
2: that have yeah. had to flee Ukraine last year, and sadly, they will have to do so this year as well. Very, very. So, likely. is there going to be a stray a change in strategy? You're new in the job now. Is there a sense now at government, at cabinet level, we need to turn this around?
4: On the community engagement side, uh, there have been improvements in that regard. So when there's a planned uh, accommodation centre opening up, we do contact the local representatives now. Um, I will also be aiming to put together a community engagement team. I think that's going to be key. At the moment, we're doing a survey with uh, local development companies around the country to see what their engagement level is already with, um, so there international will, will there be more discussion,
2: um, will there be more than just messaging, I suppose, on a public well, forum like this, that take your protest to Leinster well, House or well, elsewhere? Well, at one
4: point it's important, people don't have a veto in terms of who lives in their community, but I totally understand that when a, a large number of people might come into the community, people will, will want to know a, a little bit more information. Well, I think it's we as, start, well we started doing field that as well people feel services
2: are already very squeezed and we are in the mid, middle of a housing and a health crisis. That there's that um, that the wraparound services are provided when
4: when when we see a community enlarged. Yeah, so certainly there is a need for some improved services as well. But the people who have come into different communities that we're talking about have not made them uh, have not made those communities worse. And I would argue the opposite that they, if we do the integration properly and engagement properly, will improve and enhance those communities as well. And there are good signs that we can do that at at a grassroots level.
2: Uh, Louise, uh, to come to you on rumblings and talk we heard at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party um, around immigration, it's reported that Fine Gael members did bring it up at the Parliamentary Party, uh, the issue of immigration, to put it to the fore, um, with calls for a tougher stance.
0: Yeah, it was kind of an interesting one because on one hand, you were hearing and um, it was reported that Simon Coveney said that there is a fear of division and a fear of dividing people on this. And I think as we've heard, it's important not to do that. When Fine Gael TDs and senators that I were talking to kind of said that the message was you need to watch your language when you're talking about this and when you're out in the public, because I think there is like we were saying, you know, there's a rush on housing, there's issues with the health system. Mm-hmm can kids get a placed in schools, all these kind of things and all these really le- legitimate concerns. But I think what the TDs and the Senators were told in the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting was you need to kind of strike a balance of, yes, there are legitimate concerns, but we heard Simon Harris say last week that some of these concerns are being hijacked by certain groups. So you need to strike a balance when you're speaking about these things. Yeah, we did
2: hear uh, quite strong views reported from that um, from that meeting. Carlo Kilkenny, TD, John Paul Fielen saying that people who arrived here suspected of destroying their papers en route should be deported immediately. Uh, Regina Doherty um, telling colleagues she was concerned about raising the issue, as you say, of illegal migration, but she felt now that she needed to. And Patrick O'Donovan, uh, the junior minister, saying Fine Gael should really lead on this now. We did reach out to some of those uh, Fine Gael members who did reportedly raise the concerns. Um, they were not available to come on the programme tonight to discuss their views. But we are joined by Fine Gael, TD, Fergus O'Dowd. He joins me via Skype. Um, Fergus, you've heard some of those views. Reports of unrest within... Um, Do you agree with your colleagues who are saying we need to make this a priority and we need to firmly put it on the agenda?
7: Well, it is on the agenda. It's on the agenda because so many new people are coming into the country, into communities they haven't been in before. And I think, as Minister Joe said there, the most important thing is the community engagement, which hasn't been as good as it should be. And I welcome mm. that his appointment and the new initiatives there. But
2: in particular, and the it, harder it, stance it, that we did here, as I mentioned there, from yeah. the likes of Carla Kilkenny, yeah, TD, John Paul Phelan, saying, yeah. you know, Georgia people who Hughes, arrive yeah. here are yeah. suspected of destroying... Yeah their papers should um, immediately be deported. We even had the Taoiseach talking um, about checks at borders and bringing that conversation to the fore. Is there a sense that the immigration policy needs to be looked at? Is there a sense there within the party you want to do that?
7: I I, I think the party has different views. I expressed a view which is that we have a shortage in our economy. We have skills that we need in building, for instance, as Owen will tell you. We're short 30,000 workers. Uh, and I think we should look at the people who are in this country uh, seeking international protection, have their skills that we could use now, and get them in our economy. If nobody else will work in those places of employment, so it's not true to say, uh, you know, that that there were, you know, that we're all of one view. We're not. Uh, but having said that, uh, obviously people are concerned, and I expressed to Joe today. I had a chat in the bottom in my own constituency. Where you have new people in, in in our community, we need somewhere for them to go during the day where they can have a cup of tea, when they talk to their colleagues, uh, where they can get involved in sports. That link isn't there. And that's causing some of the distress okay. in our society. All right. you know? OK, uh,
2: Mick, uh, to bring you in on this, um, the immigration conversation clearly started, you know, a couple of decades ago, it did go away. It's clearly strongly back on the agenda now. We are hearing um, that Simon Harris might be bringing forward a a policy paper. Do you think that's overdue? Do you think it's
1: necessary? Uh, That's necessary, but I think what is even more important, Claire, is medium to long-term planning. The world is entering a new dispensation in terms of immigration immigration is going to be a reality, it's going to be an increasing reality, particularly in areas like climate change. Those of us in the West, we're going to have to get used to it. Otherwise, we're in for very serious issues if we don't. And to that extent, a government needs to plan long term. It needs to plan, for example, Catherine Day's group suggested there should be six reception centres. That should be under planning already. It should be planned in a way to ensure that there's social equity in how it is done. And also, we need to have a conditioning to (coughs) realise that we're going to have to change the way we live because there's going to be an awful lot of immigration from here on in. And it has to be. And the other thing is, we actually need immigrants in this country because of the demographics. But all of that, the government have have a, a duty to plan long term for all of that that's coming.
2: Minister, and I want to ask you about that briefly. There's all this talk about modular homes. We know a lot of the hotels that are being used, especially in tourist areas, they're going to want them back for tourism coming into the summer months. And you're talking about 70,000 refugees. You're going to have that accommodation crisis on your hands. Will the modular homes be there on time? Is there a need, as has been called for before, to kind of bypass planning, build these centres that are needed with all the wraparound services um, that are required within them?
4: Yeah, we have, we have a couple of strands, I suppose, to pick up the slack uh, when some hotels, I, I expect, won't renew their contracts. The modular is one, the refurbishing strands that the OPW are, are overseeing as well. But I do think we need to do something different, and I think that involves acquiring more properties, uh, acquiring more buildings as well. There is a strand of this. Are you has, doing that? that is has started that under started as well. proactive well, consideration I just, I right now? Say a strand of this has actually started under the white paper, under direct provision as well, where we are. Um, we have identified a number of buildings that may be suitable under the white paper, but that needs to be scaled up if, if we're to deal with what we're going to face, I think, this year and beyond.
2: Yeah, clearly a big challenge ahead, Owen, especially for the <coughs> Green
3: Party, who said they wanted to end direct provision. Well, we also want to see the end of direct provision, but there's a common thread here. Just as this government and its predecessor haven't planned and invested long-term to tackle the housing crisis or the health crisis. It's the same in the crisis for people who are seeking international protection. There's a commonality in all of this stuff. Uh, And for example, we were told at the start uh, of Russia's unjustified war in Ukraine that there was going to be 100,000. There have been less than that, and still the government haven't done the basic things that they promised they were going to do. The modular emergency accommodation units were meant to be ready by the end of the year. They're now pushed out to later this year the use of large vacant buildings to be refurbished. We were told that there were several hundred of those. We're only talking about a handful. The use, for example, of the 60,000 holiday homes- What's that were holding vacant. up the show? Because- well, My, my it, sense of it, it is- What, my what, of what it we're is, hearing is that my, there is
2: urgency around my, all of this,
3: Own. My sense of it is as follows, and and uh, I've met uh, Minister O'Gorman on a number of occasions, and to be fair to him, uh, I think Minister O'Gorman and his officials are working very hard. What I do not see is the Department of Housing, the Department of Health, And the Department of the Taoiseach making this a serious coordinated effort. Forget all the rhetoric that we heard from Micheál Martin. What I'm not seeing is a coordinated effort where we get all of these departments together. So, for example, when I met Roderick O'Gorman with other TDs Mm. about the opening of a new centre in my constituency, no answers on healthcare, no answers on housing and no commitment to engage with communities. What I'd like to see the Fine oh. Parliamentary Party do go and sort out the housing crisis that they've created. I think they would be doing themselves a much better okay. favour reducing homelessness and delivering social and affordable housing rather than throwing shapes around and No
4: coordination,
2: policy.
3: is that a fair
4: criticism? No, like, to be fair, the Department of Housing are assisting with local authorities in this as well on the refurbishment and, and, and the make room scheme as well. Uh, okay. Justice have been very good, social protection have been a- exceptional. Department of Education and Schools is its a really good example of how integration is working well uh, at community level as well. And we do have that Cabinet subcommittee where different departments do come together on a regular basis on this issue. OK, well,
2: we'll have to leave it there for now. My thanks to Vincent Jackson and Fergus O'Dowd, who joined us uh, on Skype tonight. We're going to take a quick break. My panel are staying on with me. We're going to take a look at the government's multi-billion euro plan to fix <coughs> defected apartment blocks. That's coming up after the break. Stay with us. There was relief for thousands of homeowners today as the Cabinet approved what they say will be a fully funded redress scheme for defective homes built before and during the Celtic Tiger era. Government estimates suggest that between 62,000 and 100,000 properties are affected. Uh, while making the announcement today, Minister Dara Byrne admitted that while many of the companies who built these apartments are long gone, they have a moral obligation to pay up. Uh, let's bring our panel back in on this. Louise Byrne, to come to you first on it, the finer details are still clearly to be worked out on all of this, and um, which we're hearing. How soon will people get paid? Will there be compensation for work that's being done while all of this was not planned? It is a bit of a gear change from government, isn't it? Because up until now, you know, the housing minister would not say that the state would cover repair costs
0: it is something that's been in the ether for a long time and I think it was one of the things that was, it was in the programme for government and Dara O'Brien, it was kind of one of his main things that he wanted to get through. There were there are quite a lot of questions still to be answered, but I think the minister did go a long way in answering some of them today. I think what will come as a relief to a lot of people is that the payments will be retrospective. So if you have paid to have your apartment fixed, or you're in the process of having that fixed at the moment, you will get that money back, which I think came as a relief to a lot of people. And um, they're saying that the average cost of fixing an apartment is around 25,000 euro. Minister O'Brien said so maybe more, so maybe less, but there's going to be no cap on that, which I think again was a relief for a lot of people. But how it's actually going to be administrated is quite and especially in the cases where people have already paid. So what they're looking at doing is doing it through management companies, but if in the instance where someone has already had their apartment fixed and if a management company paid to get that fixed, they're paying higher management company fees already. So what do you do there? Do you take that money off people's fees? How do they get their money back? So a lot of things still to be worked out. Minister O'Brien A minute today, but I think it seems to be a step in the right direction is what everyone is saying.
2: Yeah, what people will also look at, though, is um, the cost of this 2.5 billion euro. I mean, when you couple that with the micro-redress scheme, which I know that micro Home. Owners will say that doesn't even go towards, you know, fully replacing their home and fully dealing with the costs and what they have been through as well. There's an awful lot of money, €5 billion to make up for, you know, Celtic Tiger era calamities when it came to buildings. Um, What about the builders themselves? Will they be pursued? Because we got, like, options will be laid out around that. We got all of this talk, but a lot of people will feel, well, where are they?
4: Just initially to welcome it, it's very important from our point of view in the Green Party as well, because my colleague Catherine Martin was one of the first people to raise this issue in the doll in the previous doll as well, and we were very insistent this commitment would be in the program for government. So it's good to see a first stage of delivery today. Uh, Minister O'Brien has committed to looking at legal recourse for those builders that do still legally exist. Who are, who are to blame for some of this problem. But he made the point today that many of them have folded. So I think he's been honest and open about the fact that while we will pursue who we can in the courts, in what way we can, uh, some people cannot be pursued because their they're legal entities no yeah, longer that, exist. Isn't
2: that simply a fact on this, O'Neill oh, no, Bryn, that you can't... Like many of these guys, you know, they came, they built badly and they disappeared and it's very hard to track them down. And even if they do, they won't be able to... They won't be able to pay the homeowners who are so affected by it today.
3: Well, first of all, that's not the case. But but let me say more generally, first of all, this is a step in the right direction. Um, And it's a testament to the enormous campaigning work of homeowners and tenants right across the state for over a decade. The Defects Alliance, Apartment Owners Network, the Not Our Fault 100% Redress campaign, etc. I also have to say, there's been a very small number of journalists who have relentlessly raised this story and given voice to those uh, homeowners, and, and McClifford, I have to say, is one of those. What we now need is two things. We need to see the general scheme of the legislation as a matter of urgency. And when I say we, I mean the homeowners, because we need to know if 100% redress is 100% redress. We need to know if retrospection covers all of the work and is also 100%. We need to know what funding is available early this year for immediate and emergency fire safety works, because no money Mm -hmm. has been allocated. Uh, And we also need to have, as the Construction Defects Alliance called for today, a stakeholders implementation group. Meanwhile, and this is an important point, in Mayo and Donegal and Clare and in uh, Limerick, people who were promised an enhanced scheme a year and a half ago still have not got that scheme. The scheme they're promised is not 100% and they didn't get retrospection. So they also need to be adequately addressed. And what I would urge Minister O'Brien to do is work constructively with opposition, uh, work uh, with the homeowners, the tenants, and the approved housing bodies. Let us not delay this till the yeah, end I of the year though, oh, next year. Sorry,
0: just to bring you
2: back to something you said when I, when I put it to you, what we're hearing from government, that it's, it's going to be really hard to track down the builders. You, you said not true. Hmm.
3: OK, so, for example, and I'm not going to name any developers so I won't get you into any difficulty legally, but Belmain, one of the most significant Celtic Tiger era defect uh, 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 developments, the directors of the company who built Belmaine are still in the game. They folded that company. They have a new company. It's one of the most profitable companies in the state. It would be possible to have a relatively modest levy on the profits of large companies, whether banks or large construction companies, as well as the taxpayer element of this. Two groups of people were at fault, the state for light touch regulation and shoddy builders and developers. They both have okay. to pay, but the front loading has to be from the state, both for Celtic Tiger era defects in apartments, duplexes, and houses, because there are houses defects sure. as well. But we also I mean, have to make sure equal treatment for all yeah. defective well, homeowners, wherever they are. We're
2: not just hearing, Mick, about, you know, apartments, duplexes, as Owen was saying, uh, and houses, there may also be other buildings, you know, hospitals, other state buildings.
1: There's an issue with schools.
2: There's a lot of issues, it, yeah. yes, and schools as well. Um, do, do you see this as, as a positive step? Oh, and, yeah. and what about that that sense as well, that while well, the state is paying out €2.5 billion, Euro, people who obviously will, will benefit for this rightly are also taxpayers, so they deserve to have their homes in proper order and to be safe in their homes. Yeah,
1: no no, no question about that. Where that money is
2: coming from and chasing down those responsible as well.
1: And again, we have to face it, we we know about bank bailouts and that in terms of the the Celtic Tiger era. This is another cost from that era and the way things were done. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I think it was February 2014, the Irish Examiner reported in Longboat Quay, which was the first in a number of where it started to really fall out all the developments. That's nine years ago. So you have huge numbers of people who've been worried sick through a large part of that all the way up to today before they found out. And the devil is the detail, but it, it, it is a very positive step. One other thing, though. We still do not have a scenario whereby we have a building regulation system that can be fully, that we can have full confidence in. It has been reformed to a certain extent after Priory Hall initially, but it still is a situation whereby it is quite possible. We won't see anything on this scale again, but that doesn't necessarily mean we'll see the kind of compliance that's required when you're building people's homes.
2: Yeah, and people will say, you know, chase the builders all you like, but this is the <coughs> government's fault because of light touch regulation and the fact that. There wasn't oversight and and the state essentially let this happen during the building boom. Is there a well, danger that we haven't fully...
4: It's not this government's fault, but I would say just... something. Well, the on... government of
2: the day, uh, and to be honest, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, there's I'm... been years that the Greens have been in government and... A scheme well, such as this has not been announced in all those intervening well, years as well, the Greens are very Ryan.
4: important in, in getting this done today, I would say, as well. But just on mixed point, um, the Minister has committed to bring in an independent uh, building standards regulator as well uh, and bringing proposals uh, to Cabinet this year as well. So, And I think standards have improved over the years as well, but... I think going forward, we need to ensure uh, that this doesn't happen again as well, and bringing in that independence regulator would be very important, I think, in that regard.
3: And, and Claire just to say, the minister hasn't committed to doing it. He said he would explore it. 2018, the Oireachtas Housing Committee unanimously agreed a report, I know because I authored it. It didn't just call for a redress scheme, it set out the kind of independent inspection regime mm. we require, and the need for a statewide building control and consumer protection agency to do exactly what Mick said. That is required as a matter of urgency because we are going to see an increase in new residential building. Not fast enough in my view, but we're going to see it. And we already have defective buildings. Uh, Mick has reported on a number of occasions okay. in Lockfield House, right. in my own constituency, that's defective and it's post 2014. So yes, let's get the redress scheme right. Let's get it up and running as quickly as possible. But let us put in place the strongest possible building <clears throat> control regime to protect whether they're homeowners or tenants or social housing tenants, to ensure this kind of right. thing never happens okay. again.
2: That's all we have time for there. My thanks to Ownt, Louise, and to Mick. Joe is staying on with us coming up after the break. Reports that Cabinet are considering plans to boost our electric charging infrastructure right around the country. But would it be enough to convince you to go electric? Back. There have been reports that the Cabinet is looking at plans to have electric chargers every 60 kilometres as part of a new push to get people to change their driving habits. Joe Byrne is still here with me. I'm joined oh. by Geraldine Herbert, Motoring Editor at The Sunday Independent. Um, you're welcome along to the programme, Ger. We're going to get more details on this in a, in a briefing tomorrow. But it is a big catch-up um, from that top line about charging points every 60 kilometres, a big catch-up on the infrastructure that's needed for electric cars um, in this country, notwithstanding, sales have been going re- very well. Um, then the infrastructure, that's been the criticism. that's not there to match it.
6: Yeah, I think the infrastructure has definitely not kept a pace with sales and it's certainly not keeping pace with targets. I think it's extraordinary as well that it's taken so long to announce a £100 million investment in the public charging network over the next three years. I mean, the time to do this was in 2019. In June 2019, when the government announced the Climate Action Plan, they at that point said that they were going to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars in 2030. They were going to put 950 electric cars in the road by 2030. That was the time to start mm-hmm. investing in the charging network seriously, not now. I mean, yes, now, because we need it, but it should have been done years ago. Yeah,
2: Like, it would seem to me, um, Joe O'Brien, to be pretty straightforward uh, to do this, to put those charging points in place instead of people, you know, running the risk. And we've all heard of those stories. They're like, will I get to it? And when I do get to a charging point, will it be free? Will I be waiting around for an hour to be able to access it and... and, uh,
4: recharge the car? Well, look, I, I guess the Greens are in government now and we see the urgency to, to decarbonise our, our transport system as well. But you're right. I mean, it's been the main, one of the main, I suppose, barriers that have stopped people from moving to electric cars. Uh, the, What's the, the delay the, about? The, well, 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 For we're providing out the these plan. charging
2: points every 60 kilometres.
4: Yeah. Well, we're rolling out the plan tomorrow now oh, and, yeah. and, and getting it moving. Obviously, we'd like to have these things sooner, but uh, we're, we're going to have the plan rolled out tomorrow and I think people will see a dramatic difference in the charging network over the I next year. I mean was there planning 20.
2: issues or you know what had to be taken into account when doing all of this because um, as you say that you know we did get this big announcement around going electric how We have to meet climate targets in the area, and I think people may be frustrated by by the slow pace.
4: Well, I think it's important that we support a variety of ways to actually improve the charging infrastructure as well. Obviously, there's the grant, the 600 euro grant that people can uh, apply for their home home charger as well. There has been an issue, what I would call community charging as well. People living in apartment blocks uh, where there's dense housing as well quite difficult for them. There's plans for community charging points that will help that as well. We need to get local authorities more on board here as well. Uh, and also service stations too need to step up to the plate. Uh, but there is a commitment in this now that along the motorway network, every mm-hmm. 60 kilometers at least, uh, there will be a charging point. And that will take the fear out of, I think, longer journeys as well. And that's where a lot of the reluctance was, I think, uh, with electric cars, that people were not sure in terms of, you know, a cross country trip, how viable it was. Uh, but this pa- plan will put in place a, a, a network that will ensure that's more viable and and, and more more reassurance yeah. will be given all, to people. all
2: those things um there that uh, the minister has mentioned talking about you know where you have built up urban areas with a lot of apartment living as well um that that they really need to they really need to get a hold of that like are there barriers there at local level and at local authority level in providing these charge points? Is there a lot of red tape holding it all up?
6: Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, this was only rolled out, the facility to be able to do this very recently. You know, there wasn't the the apartment grant and all of that is relatively new. But there seems to have been quite a, a slow uptake on behalf of local authorities... To, to move on this. But also I think Claire, we need to seriously look at the fact that we discriminate considerably now against people who don't have home chargers in terms of the cost. The ESB raised the public charging network costs by 50% on the 20th of December. Now while it makes perfect sense to buy an electric car if you have a home charger and you're on a night rate it's not making nearly as much sense if you're on a public charging rate and we need to look at some way of actually balancing that and not discriminating against people who don't have access to home chargers. They shouldn't be paying the sort of costs that they are at the moment moment. Um, are you seeing
2: people who got an electric car, are you hearing about this, who've moved back now to petrol or diesel because of, uh, of the cost or because of the, the, the awkwardness, the lack of infrastructure that's there when they are travelling?
6: Yeah, unfortunately that is an issue. Now the vast majority of people who buy an electric car, you know, do not return to petrol and diesel, but there are people, and I've spoken to quite a few of them in the last few weeks, who just could not make it work. They were just completely frustrated purely by the charging network. That just, it, you know, it became just unfeasible to have an electric car as their main car and they've had to revert back and most of them incredibly reluctantly and these are people who've done exactly what the government have asked they've made that transition Mm. they've gone electric and it just hasn't worked for them.
2: Um, One of the other teething problems or you could say you know we're we're a while into this now there shouldn't still be teething problems uh, Jer. I think that you highlighted and I'm wondering what you think about this minister is this single payment system should be in place where you need multiple apps you know, to access public and private networks and some of them you need to prepay and others you don't. And it's not streamlined or straightforward for the motorist.
4: Well, I think part of the strategy will need to be to make it user-friendly as well. Um, There will be a different way I think of planning your trip as well but I think this is all about making it easy making it customer friendly and usable as well we do want to move people towards electric cars people are doing that already anyway and we just want to accelerate that as much as we can and I think this strategy will will give an extra boost to that movement. yeah and
2: finally look it is still very costly for people to buy an electric car they are not cheap do you think there should be more grants and further incentives for people
6: Um, Well, I think getting the charging network right would be a key thing, first of all. I think second thing is that the government has to continue the current grants. Any idea of actually withdrawing those at this stage, it's just too early. So I think those grants need to be in place. They will eventually create a second-hand market, which is where the vast majority of people are going to get their EVs, um, EVs from. But I think definitely the continuation of the grants is the key thing. All right. OK, there
2: we'll leave it. Um, my thanks to everyone who joined us tonight, to Ger Herbert, to Minister Joe O'Brien and every, the rest of our panel. That is it from us. Um, our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok, tonight VMTV, And you can head over to Virgin Media too, where the group chat is about to start. But from all of the late team here, good night. Take care.